Hey, this is Jen. Before we get started with today's show, I have a quick ask of you. If the show has helped you in any way, please take a couple of minutes to rate and review the show. Let us know what you think. Let us know what's helped you. Let us know what you want more of, what you want less of. But just take a couple minutes to do that. It would mean a ton to me and it'll help us get better and better in the future. I really do want to hear from you. Have you ever been asked the question, what do you want out of life? And did you answer with, I just want to be happy? Happiness is something we are all striving for. And why shouldn't we be? It's the ultimate positive emotion. But is our pursuit of happiness misguided? Is it something we will always chase but never truly achieve? Is there something else out there that can provide us with greater fulfillment? The answer may lie in finding and cultivating meaning. This is the WorkWell podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, Chief Wellbeing Officer for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be here with you today to talk about all things well-being. I'm here with Emily Esfahani-Smith, a writer and speaker who draws on psychology, philosophy, and literature to help us all better understand the human experience, why we are the way we are, and how we can flourish with grace and meaning in a world that is also suffering. So I was in graduate school uh, back in 2012 studying positive psychology, which is the science of human well-being. And um, what I learned there really uh, surprised me in terms of some of the research around what well-being consists of, what a good life constitutes. And one of the things that came up is that, um, you know, people who uh, pursue happiness and chase it the way that our culture encourages us to do can actually end up feeling unhappy. And when I learned that, it, it, it really surprised me. But then as I looked around in our culture, I saw that there were so many messages and signaling that we that we get all the time about how we should be happy and how happiness is the be all end all of life and that if we pursue happiness there are all these ways our lives will be better so there's this real push um, in our culture and the media uh, to kind of pursue happiness and yet the research was telling a different story and there was this whole new body of research that it was it was new at the time that was growing up around meaning and how meaning is this other path to well-being. And this is actually, you know, an idea that's thousands of years old, going back to ancient philosophy, that to lead a good life, there's kind of these two paths. One is the path of happiness and positive emotions and pleasure. The other is the path of meaning or, you know, virtue or kind of, you know, living your potential, these pursuits that are hard um, and don't necessarily make us happy as we're pursuing them, but, you know, give us this deeper sense of well-being along the way. So the research on meaning showed that not only is it this deeper form of well-being, while happiness comes and goes, meaning is something that lasts, but also that, you know, when you look across the last few decades, um, one of the most surprising features is that there are all these kind of objective ways that life is getting better. And yet at the same time, 
Uh, more people are depressed. They're lonely, anxious. Suicide rates are increasing. They, they've you know, been increasing in the United States and recently reached a 30-year high, actually. Um, so when researchers look at all of that, what they find is that what predicts this rising tide of misery isn't a lack of happiness in people's lives, but a lack of meaning. And so um, that, yeah, that just made me realize, okay, meaning is what we should be focusing on, even though our culture is pushing us so much towards happiness. So what actually creates meaning in someone's life? So that was my next question. <laughs> and um, I, you know, I was curious, is it something that you have to, everyone has to find on their own, you know, they have to find their own meaning of life, or are there certain things that we each can kind of lean on to make our lives more meaningful? And so turning to the research and um, to interviews of people um, that I did, I started seeing these patterns. And specifically, there are these four themes that came up again and again as you know, pathways uh, or pillars to of a meaningful life. And these four things are what people mentioned in one way or another, as they told me about what makes their lives meaningful. Um, so the first one is belonging. So having a sense of belonging or being in relationships or part of communities where you're valued for who you are intrinsically and where you value others for who they are. Uh, the second is purpose, and that's about um, having some kind of principle or long-term goal that orients your life and moves you into the future. And it can be big or small, like you know, being a good person is a purpose, raising children is a purpose. Uh, the third is transcendence, or these moments of awe and wonder, uh, where you're kind of lifted above the hustle of and bustle of daily life and feel connected to something much bigger. And the fourth is storytelling. Um, and, and what I mean by storytelling is the story that you tell yourself about yourself, about how you became the person that you are today. Well, I'd love to, to dig into purpose a little bit, but um, I'm going to, I'm going to actually start with, storytelling because mm -hmm. I'd love to learn a little bit more about your story because I think that your story is is part of the reason why you why you chose this path and why you started to to look at meaning and purpose and, and happiness in the first place am I right yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. And I guess I should have mentioned that um, earlier when you were asking me about happiness and meaning. But I think part of why um, those ideas that I was encountering in grad school about the difference between happiness and meaning resonated so strongly with me is because they did bring to mind, um, you know, experiences that reached back to my childhood, where I grew up living in a Sufi meeting house. Um, so for those who might not know, Sufism is a spiritual practice, a spiritual path that's associated with Islam. Uh, the whirling dervishes were Sufis. The poet Rumi uh, was a Sufi. And so it, it's this kind of mystical path. And living um, in the meeting house was uh, a lot like what I imagine living in a Buddhist Sangha would, would be like, so twice a week, we had these spiritual seekers, these dervishes come to our home where on one floor of our home, there was this big room uh, that 
you know, there were no seats or anything. There were just cushions on the floor and people would sit on the ground and they would meditate for several hours. And, you know, Sufism, one of the places where it, um, it really flowered historically was in Iran and that's where my family is from. So um, there were a lot of kind of Persians there and a lot of people who um, had really gone through kind of difficult life events. So in Iran, after the Islamic revolution, um, Sufis became, uh, you know, persecuted. They became one of the groups that were persecuted because in many places in the Middle East, um, where there's kind of a more radical version of Islam lived out, Sufi, Sufism is considered heretical. So, you know, in certain places, even you can be put to death for being a Sufi. So we had a lot of Sufis who, uh, were refugees from the Middle East. Um, others were, Westerners, Americans, and Canadians who had just kind of been beaten up by life in different ways. And yet they all found comfort in this spiritual practice that um, brought them peace, but that also demanded a lot of them. So, you know, part of Sufism is, is of course, meditating, which anyone who's done that knows it's really hard to kind of do this work just to turn down the volume of the ego, the small self, to connect to something bigger. Loving kindness is a central part of Sufism, the way it is with most um, religious and spiritual practices, uh, service, things like that. And so, you know, all of it was in the service of leading a meaningful life. And the way that they um, found meaning in life was by doing these practices and rituals that brought them closer to that higher thing, whether it was meditating or prayer or fasting or, or um, you know, service or whatnot. So, you know, I grew up with people who had meaning very much at the center of their life story and at the center of their own lives. Eventually, though, we, um, we moved out of the Sufi meeting house, left Montreal and came to the United States where I led, you know, basically a much more normal kind of life. You know, I was going to middle school and high school and all of a sudden the things that mattered were getting good grades and, and being successful. And then, of course, this this whole uh, pressure to be happy and, and, and to kind of show a happy face to the world. And in the midst of that, I really began to wonder you know, what is it that um, makes our lives meaningful in a society that's more secular? Um, and I think for a lot of people today, that's the question. You know, we either, you know, maybe you grew up with some kind of spiritual or religious practice um, in childhood, but then you leave home and you're kind of on your own and you have to figure these things out for yourself. You know, what is my purpose? What, you know, what does give my life meaning? And it, it's really important to figure these things out because, you know, the psychiatrist, Viktor Frankl, the Holocaust survivor, said that human beings have a need for meaning that's as strong and important and vital to our psychological and emotional health uh, as food, water, and shelter are to our physical health. And that without meaning, we suffer in all these ways that I mentioned earlier. We get depressed. Some people commit suicide. There's more anxiety, more feelings of disconnection. So, it seemed to me, you know, in those years, as I was kind of moving through high school and college, and then after that, that this question of meaning is really the central question of our lives today, when so many of the traditional sources of meaning have fallen away, how can we find meaning? That's what led me to studying positive psychology in graduate school. And now I'm actually um, about to begin in just a couple of weeks, a, a doctoral program in psychology too. Wow. 
Um, I talk a lot about purpose and I get a lot of questions about purpose, uh, probably, you know, not dissimilar to questions around meaning, but, you know, how do I discover my purpose? Is it something that is, you know, inherently there that I should just know? Is it, you know, is it something big? Is it something small? Does it change over time or over my life? Mm -hmm. If I'm not able to live my purpose or bring my purpose to work with me, how else can I give to my purpose or bring my purpose through in the work that I do? So can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So um, psychologists define purpose as a goal or a principle that organizes your life, that involves making a contribution to the world, and that is, um, you know, valued or meaningful to you in some way. So it's meaningful to you, meaningful to the world, and it kind of helps you make sense of all of the things that you're doing. Uh, so it, it endows the ordinary events of day-to-day life with meaning. Uh, and, you know, there is this kind of sense in our culture, uh, a myth, I would say, that you have to kind of find your capital P purpose in order to have purpose in your life. And that purpose is something that you find that you have to kind of go on this quest and search and search and search, turn over enough rocks. And eventually there it is. There's your purpose. Once you find it, you're set for the rest of your life. Um, and that's, you know, that's not what I found when I looked at the research and what I, uh, when I interviewed people about their own lives, about what gives them purpose. What I found was actually purpose is more of a mindset or an attitude that you bring to life. You live with purpose. You don't find your purpose. And um, some people are really good at kind of seeing the big picture of their own life or of their work and connecting what they do to that big picture. So for example, you know, I mentioned earlier, like for some people, being a good person is a purpose or, you know, creating a sense of home for your family or being a parent. And so just to take the example of being a parent, there's so much drudgery involved, whether it's, you know, changing diapers or disciplining your children or running them from this practice to that event and, you know, back again. And if you just kind of see it as drudgery, that's, that's going to be what it feels like. But people who actually see parenting as a purpose or even one of their callings in life, all of those things that feel like tedious you know, activities or drudgery, those things become infused with meaning because they're in the service of this uh, you know, greater purpose of you know, raising a child to kind of you know, be a good human being and you know, make their way out into the world. And it's the same with work. You know, some some people kind of get caught up in the day-to-day tasks that don't seem very significant, or they're kind of overwhelmed with how much work they have to do. It's so stressful. But when you kind of step back and take the larger perspective of the bigger thing that your work is doing, and all work, I would argue, does fill some kind of need, that's why it exists. When you, when you connect what you're doing to that larger thing, it becomes, the work becomes more meaningful to you and you kind of become more connected to the purpose in your work. Hmm. You talked a little bit about this, especially in your, your own experience moving to the United States, but why is our society so focused on, on happiness? And, and, and then I guess, can you also, can you have happiness and meaning or is it one, one or the other? Or mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about that. 
Yeah, definitely. So I'll start um, with the last question. And definitely you can have both. So I remember I looked at one data set that a researcher shared with me and she, you know, she was examining whether people have both meaning and happiness or just one or just the other. And what she found is that very roughly speaking, about a quarter of the people she surveyed had both happiness and meaning in their lives. A quarter had happiness, but no meaning, not no meaning, but less meaning. A quarter had meaning, but either no or less happiness. And then a quarter were, were really low on both meaning and happiness. Mm. Um, so you can definitely have both. And, um, and I think it's important to remember too, I mean, I'm not saying that happiness is terrible, that we shouldn't care about happiness. Obviously, it's a wonderful kind of experience to be happy. Um, and, and meaning can bring happiness. And a lot of the things that are meaningful to us do give joy as well, whether it's, you know, accomplishing a goal or, um, mm -hmm. you know, being in nature, you know, as a portal to transcendence, going on a walk, being with your kids. You know, th there are a lot of places where meaning and happiness overlap in our lives. Um, but I think where we get things wrong, to go back to your earlier questions, is when we make happiness the end goal itself. So mm -hmm. when when happiness becomes like the singular pursuit, then um, you know what what the soul wants. Viktor Frankl said is meaning, and when you kind of feed it happiness instead, it's kind of like you know feeding yourself Snickers bars when you're really hungry for like a well balanced meal. It's just it doesn't go deep enough when you pursue happiness alone. It kind of leads people into pursuing this kind of superficial, cheap, simple happiness that you know, it feels good in the moment, but then goes away. Whereas if you pursue meaning, if that's the end goal, then you get the meaning that your, 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 your kind of inner life is yearning for. But this, then that, then this deeper kind of happiness comes as well. So, um, you know, you're not just kind of crashing from the momentary high. And I think the reason why our culture is so focused on happiness, I mean, this isn't anything new. This has kind of been part of, you know, the story of Western culture yeah. for hundreds of years, but it really intensified, you know, in, in the last couple hundred kind of, you know, from the 1800s onward, when um, at that point, there was this kind of philosophical revolution in how people understood happiness before happiness was understood very much in terms of meaning these there was kind of these two things went together, happiness and meaning. A couple hundred years ago, happiness become much more defined in terms of um, maximizing positive emotions, minimizing negative emotions. And I think the reason why this caught on is because it's easier to actually do that day to day. You know, you can do things that kind of maximize your positive emotions and minimize your negative ones to kind of make yourself happy, you know, kind of give you a spritz, you know, one spritz after another mm -hmm. to carry you through the day. Um, happiness itself is just a word that people kind of latch on to. People know immediately, you know, they have a sense that that's what they want in life. The, you know, they see the big yellow smiley face. It's just, it's easier to kind of comprehend. It's easier to um, program into your life than meaning, which is a, a more abstract concept and requires more work. You know, you're, you're kind of constantly working towards um, your the things that are meaningful to you towards building a meaningful life. So is, um, you know, because I often hear that, you know, happiness is, is fleeting or happiness happens in, in moments. It's not kind of a constant state that you're in. Would you, would you say that that's true? I, I think that's true. I mean, I think that that's, you know, that's what the research bears out that, yeah. you know, it, it's kind of, um, it, it's, 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 you know, like all emotions, it comes and goes. And that's right. true of, 
you know, sadness, and that's true of joy and, and, you know, feelings of peacefulness as well. I certainly think some people kind of, you know, go through life with a, you know, stable set line of happiness that's higher than other people's. Um, so maybe they feel more content, you know, through life than other people do. But like when we think about happiness, which many psychologists and philosophers define as a positive mental and emotional state of, you know, feeling good, state of positive emotions, that is something that is, you know, by definition fleeting. Hmm. So how does this impact us, you know, in the day, in the way we deal with crisis and perhaps um, <laughs> certainly relevant in Viktor Frankl's life, but really how does, how does having meaning um, help us deal with crisis? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's such a great question. And I, you know, when I mentioned in grad school that I kind of became fascinated by this topic of meaning, it really was from encountering the work of Viktor Frankl and um, just to kind of briefly go into his story a little bit. So he, of course, was a Holocaust survivor. He was a Jewish psychiatrist living in Vienna when the Nazis came to power. And um, I think in 1941 or 1942, he and his family were, uh, you know, taken to a concentration camp. And he, um, he survived, of course, but his family, including his wife and his parents, all died. And in the camp, um, Frankel kind of worked as a, you know, unofficial counselor, you know, to many of the inmates there. He was, he, it was a continuation of his work, you know, before he, um, be, you know, was interned at the camps uh, where he was before working as a psychologist and a psychiatrist uh, and oftentimes with suicidal patients. So in the camps, again, he's, you know, surrounded by people in crisis. And what he says is that, you know, some of these people, gave up on life, basically. They'd lost their freedom. They'd lost their, you know, all their possessions, their homes. Some of them had watched their children or family members walk into the gas chambers. And these people, you know, very understandably decided that, you know, they gave up hope. They decided there was nothing left to live for. And these people who lost meaning, um, you know, Frankel said, they, they're, you know, there's something about them that just kind of gave up on life altogether. But there was other people who there were other people who um, who took a different attitude, who continued to believe their lives were meaningful even in this horrendous, nightmarish uh, situation. And those people, Frankel said, were ultimately more resilient to suffering and even more. And I'm quoting him here: apt to survive, which mm -hmm. is to say that you know everyone's going through the same experience, and some people, you know die of starvation and sickness and other people don't. And so, you know, one, one of the things that set those who lived apart from those who died, he said, was the fact that they held on to meaning. And, you know, this idea is kind of controversial to some people, but it is borne out in, um, in empirical research that's been done, you know, you know, in recent, you know, recent years. So, you know, many years after Frankel's experiences that show that do people who have a sense of meaning in life do experience greater longevity, are more resilient in all these ways Frankel was talking about. And um, he tells the story of a couple of suicidal inmates uh, whom he counseled in the camps. And, you know, both of them, of course, had given up on the idea that their lives were worth living. And for both of them, Frankel said, you know, changing their minds about that was a matter of getting them to see that there was still something expected of them in the future. So, um, so re reconnecting them to a sense of purpose was what was critical. 
And for one of them, he was a scientist and it was a series of books that he had been working on before he was imprisoned. And the prospect of continuing that work uh, you know, restored in him a sense of purpose and a will to live. And for the other, uh, who was a parent and whose son was living elsewhere in Europe in refuge with another family, it was the prospect of reuniting with his son. So once these men saw that their lives still had purpose, they they had hope. They, they developed what Frankel calls an attitude of tragic optimism. And what he defines that as is this ability to continue to believe life is meaningful and that there is hope despite all the suffering and loss and grief in life. And so in, in your own words, <laughs> um, you know, kind of translate that into, um, you know, what we're going through today with the, with this mm-hmm. global pandemic and, and all of the uncertainty and really, I mean, life as we knew it, um, you know, likely forever changed. Mm-hmm. And, and how do we, how do we continue to move forward in a, you know, hopeful and meaningful way? Yeah, no, that that certainly is the question for millions of people today. And, you know, what I think the takeaway from Frankel's story is that meaning can give us an anchor in times of crisis and when things feel so uncertain. Um, You know, we can't control what's, you know, a great deal of what's happening around us, but we can control um, how we respond to it, how we make sense of it, and what we do um, as a response to it. So, um, you know, Frankel said that, you know, even, um, you know, in the concentration camp, you know, there were people who went around and shared their last scrap of bread with other, you know, inmates in the camp, and that there weren't any of them. But the fact that there were any of them was proof of the last of all human freedoms, which is the freedom to choose your own way of interpreting what's going on in your life. And I think about that all the time today, which is that, you know, you can look at what's happening and decide every, you know, everything is so uncertain. It's everything is, you know, hopeless. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. Or you can look at life and say, you know, those things are, a lot of those things are true. Like things are uncertain. Um, I don't know what is going to happen in a year, two years, whatever, but I still have control over, you know, what I do, how I see the world. There is still hope. People are, you know, out there doing good in the world still, even though there is a lot of, you know, uncertainty. Um, and there are opportunities, I think, to to turn inward and, and learn about ourselves and about the world from this crisis. And I think that's always um, that's always a form of redemption that's available to us as we're going through crisis is, is tuning into how we could possibly be growing as a result of what's happening and learning both about ourselves, about the people we love and about the world that we're living in. Um, so finding, you know, tragic optimism is really just about finding that light that can sustain you and light the way through all this darkness. And I think remembering that, you know, these experiences are crucibles through which we can grow um, and become wiser and deeper and maybe have more clarity on where our path lies afterwards. Um, That's, that's a form of redemption, a a form of hope that we can hold on to. 
Can you talk to me a little bit about awe and, and, you know, transcendence? I I think I remember you saying something about, you know, looking up at the night sky and, and, you know, using that to find moments of awe. And um, that has been something that has been really powerful for me, actually, over the past several months. Yeah, definitely. Actually, can I just, I just want to add something. There is this kind of narrative in our culture that when people go through crisis or experience adversity or trauma, that those experiences can really break them. And we hear so much about post-traumatic stress disorder. But it turns out that actually far more people, in fact, the majority of people who go through these kind of crucible experiences of adversity experience what's called post-traumatic growth. So most of us will grow through the adversities that we experience, including this adversity. And there are you know, several ways in which researchers find that people grow, including deepening our relationships, having more clarity on our life purpose, having more appreciation for life, uh, deepening our spiritual path. So you know, it's, even though things are really hard, there are these opportunities to find meaning through the growth that we are, are many of us will potentially experience. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so I just wanted to say that when it comes to awe and transcendence, these are really powerful um, experiences of meaning, and they're meaningful for two reasons. One, the experience themselves is meaningful. They they kind of lock us into the present moment, um, and in that experience of feeling awe beneath you know, the night sky, looking up at the stars, for example, or being in the woods or encountering beauty of some kind, whether it's a work of art or a piece of music, um, you know, giving birth. There's so many ways that we can experience this. There are many religious ways as well, meditation, prayer, liturgy. When we have these experiences, we kind of, we come into the present moment and our anxieties and worries, all of these aspects of what philosophers and religious leaders call the small self, melt away as we come into contact with something much bigger than ourselves, whether it's, you know, God or our families or nature or universal consciousness. Um, There's this connection to something almost cosmic. And that what happens then is there's this kind of shift that happens within us where we feel tiny in the midst of the grandness of whatever we're connecting to. And this is where the awe comes from. It's awe-inspiring to kind of recognize our own tininess in, in this great majestic world. And even though we feel so small and as scary as that can be, it also is reassuring because we realize that we're one part of something much bigger. So this great mystery that's out there, we're a part of it and that's reassuring. And so that's why these experiences are intrinsically meaningful. But then they also, after we have them, they can reorder people's values uh, in, in ways that make their lives more meaningful as well. So for example, I talk about this study um, and I write about it in my book, of uh, undergraduates at the University of California at Berkeley who were uh, told to go out and look out at um, look up at these uh, 200 feet tall eucalyptus trees on campus. There's this kind of beautiful grove of eucalyptus trees on campus. Uh, if you visit, it's, it's really worth seeing. And so the undergrads were told to look up at those trees just for a minute 
And in that minute, they, they did indeed experience awe. They had a transcendent experience. And afterwards, when they were put in a situation where they could help somebody, they not only were more likely to help that person than people in a control group, but they actually spent more time helping that person too. So these experiences kind of take us out of our small self with our, you know, selfish kind of concerns and self-oriented uh, thinking. And they get us focused on something outside of ourselves and they shift our values in that way so that we can live in more meaningful ways. So I think I have one final question for you and it's, it's a tactical question. Are there things that, that our listeners can do or things that you recommend um, to help people really build, you know, day-to-day habits or day-to-day things we can do to build meaning into our lives or to create meaning in our lives? Definitely. So I think, you know, we, we were just talking about on transcendence and I think that, you know, it's, we can, we can make time in our days for experiences of on transcendence. And it doesn't have to be a whole lot of time. Like in that study, the, the, the students looked up at those trees just for a minute. So if you have, you know, five minutes where you can listen to a piece of music that just takes your breath away or, uh, meditate or, you know, be outside in your yard or in the woods without your phone, where you're really just focusing on the world outside of your own head. These moments of kind of where you come into stillness, if, if you can make time for those every day and just a few minutes, it can really be powerful, really be centering. And of course, if you have more than a few minutes, that's even better. Um, but starting with just a few minutes is, 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 is really kind of powerful and effective as well. So I would say, Chino, try to make a habit of transcendence and awe in some way in your life. Um, the other thing I will say is, um, I'll just kind of, I'll give an example for, for each one. So that's transcendence. For purpose, um, try to connect whatever it is you're doing to the bigger picture. So, you know, I talked about, you know, parenting and, you know, the, the tediousness that, that can kind of come with the parenting role, connecting it to the bigger picture of raising children. But, you know, in your work as well, I remember one of the people I interviewed who was part of a bigger study on meaning at work, she was a hospital cleaner. And she said to me, you know, my job isn't cleaning bedpans and mopping the floor, it's healing sick people. So she took what she did and she connected it to the bigger picture. So that's kind of a mindset shift. For belonging, one of the things with belonging that's really interesting is that you, do, you can experience this pillar of meaning in any of your relationships, including relationships with strangers and colleagues. It's not just a feature of our close uh, relationships to you know loved ones and, and friends, but you can experience it with anyone just by... Um, tuning into one another by, you know, when you're with someone, whether it's the clerk at the grocery store or, you know, a colleague at work, really listening to them, making eye contact, um, being engaged with them and not distracted by your phone or, you know, whatever the, whatever else might be distracting you for that moment of connection, um, which researchers call, have called many different things. They call it attunement. They call it a micro connection. I've seen researchers even describe this as a moment of love. When two people kind of come onto the same wavelength, even just for a minute, they're turning towards each other. And, and what happens is there's this kind of really vital connection where they both leave that encounter feeling seen by the other, feeling 
heard by the other, feeling truly valued. So we all have the power to kind of choose that in these small moments day to day. Finally, with storytelling, I will say, so I want to kind of give an example that's relevant to this moment of history right now, which is, um, you know, we're all going through this pandemic and the incredible amount of loss that it's, you know, born in our lives, whether it's loss of life of loved ones or loss of routine, loss of jobs, whatever. Um, As, you know, as we kind of move through this time in our lives, I would encourage people to think about you know, think about themselves in 10, 20 years down the line, reflecting back on this experience and think about, you know, what is the story that 10, 20 years down the line you want to tell about this time in your life um, as you move through this kind of global crisis? Is it a story of, I, you know, use this this as an opportunity to, to grow, to learn new things, to connect with people in new ways? Or is it a story of, I spent my free time binge watching Netflix or, you know, I mean, there's like, we, you know, you want to make sure that the story you're telling yourself in 10 or 20 years is one that you will be at peace with and, and feel good about. And so um, if, if, you're, if you're living a life right now that's not kind of producing a story that way, um, I'd encourage you to think really hard about what story you want to live and to change your behaviors um, to come into accordance with that story. I think my my story is going to be a combination of both because I've, yeah. I've certainly done a done done a bit of each. So if I'm and completely I, honest, I think that's okay too. You know, it's yeah, it doesn't have to be twenty four hour, twenty four seven meaning making all the time. You can make room for happiness. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Emily. This is there just there was so much richness in here and so much to digest and and take away that I know I will be thinking about and implementing for for days and months to come. So thank you again for being on the show. Oh, thanks, Jen. It's great to be with you. I'm so grateful Emily could be here with us today to share her insights on the power of meaning. Thank you to our producers and our listeners. You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword WorkWell, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you'd like to hear on the WorkWell podcast series or maybe a story you would like to share, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jen Fisher or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to your recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thank you and be well.